Welcome to the Gosnells Live at Five podcast. I'm Tom, and I'm the founder here at Gosnells. I'm Will, I'm the head brewer here at Gosnells. I'm James, and I make the meat. This is our informal podcast, which we're spinning out from our Instagram live sessions. We do these every Friday live at five. And we'll be talking about honey, fermentation, and of course what we're here for, the mead. We'll also be joined from time to time by some very special guests to talk about booze more generally. If you haven't already, guys, hit that subscribe button to our podcast, whatever medium you're on. Uh, Leave us a review. Follow us on our social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Gosnells Mead. Perfect. Should we get into it? Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, so thanks a lot. We're, we're joined today by, by Lauren from Blom Mead Meadery. Um, welcome. How are you guys doing? We're pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Getting close to Friday. Yeah. 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 It's uh, what, five o'clock here. So we are just about to crack. Well, we just have cracks of, cracks of mead. Uh, what, are you, what are you drinking there? Um, I'm drinking Perry Saison. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. Christmas mead. Yeah. It's a uh, cranberry cool. major. Oh, nice. You said cranberry, yeah. Yeah, nice. What sort of, had you uh, used the cranberries? Was that sort of dried cranberries or was that sort of fresh cranberries? Fresh, yeah. So we um, we source all of our raw materials from here in Michigan, but there, there are some cranberry bogs on the other side of the state. And they, uh, yeah, we buy fresh cranberries and we freeze them and then uh, thaw them and press them. And I had the ju- we had the juice straight in and then... Uh, we add some of the fruit in as well, uh, depending on what we're doing, like where the tannin levels are looking. Uh, but usually, yeah, I would, cool. uh, there's not a ton of tannin added beyond the juice. Like the juice actually carries a quite a bit with it. So. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I know. Like usually, uh, yeah, we use kind of whole fruit to grab tannin structure, but you do get some when you press as well, which is yeah, it's a little, little harder to extract, but yeah, it's uh, it's cool. Um, so, Lauren, Matt, do you want to just uh, give us a bit of an intro to, to you guys and you know your meadery and what you're up to? Yeah, so um, we're here in Ann Arbor in Michigan. Uh, we own Bloom Mead Works together. Just a little bit of a misnomer. We make mead and cider uh, and kind of have out the gates in part because both of them we could make so easily with ingredients from Michigan. So Michigan produces a ton of honey, produces a lot of apples. Um, so that just kind of lent itself well to fermenting here. We, uh, in terms of background, I was working in the education nonprofit sector, knew I wanted to move into local food sourcing, food equity, that arena. Matt was working in financial software yeah, and ended up opening a brewery with some friends um, and was a few years into that brewery as the head brewer when he found out he had a gluten allergy and couldn't drink beer. Um, so you toughed it out for what, maybe like another year and a half? Yeah, I structured my exit over about a year. So technically I'm still an owner, but I don't run the company or anything like that. So. Uh, yeah. Kind of like a crappy time to still be brewing, but just relying on other people's palates and not be able to taste it. And um, uh, yeah, yeah. And just, you know, I, I, his, his partners were really understanding, but it was just a rough go. Anyway, so we were moving to Michigan. We thought, wait, can we come buying these two things. You want to stay in fermentation. You want to do some like interesting fermenting. I really want to work, work on local food sourcing. Why can't we make, why can't we join those two together? So we started playing with recipes and um, so we make meads and ciders, but we make all session style meads. Um, nice, cool. Yeah, kind of like us. 
Yeah. Neilio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they all fall, you know, five to seven percent carbonated. Everything's leans pretty heavily to the dry side. Um, yeah. When we were thinking about what we wanted to do, we realized that Michigan had a lot to offer as far as agriculture. We knew that we wanted to like, we knew we wanted to source locally, but we had we, we were trying to figure out how we wanted to find that. So, you know, there's some some trends here in the US where you might do it by a radius or by a geographical region. And we decided to, to define it by the state of Michigan because it was it was easier for us to define. So it's it's real clean and simple for us to say we source all of our raw materials from here in Michigan, instead of trying to explain that like, you know, it's within a hundred mile radius or it's a hundred and fifty mile radius or or what defi other defining factors we wanted to go for. Uh, and then from that, uh, I guess I should back up. We we knew we wanted to source locally, but I we didn't know what we wanted to make. So <laughs> I knew I wanted to ferment, and my initial thought was gluten-free beer. And my family has a farm about 45 minutes north of Ann Arbor, and we already grow some hops out there. And I so I knew that those I could expand that program and, and put more hops in for for that side of it. Um, and I was like, and I looked at what gluten-free grains were available and there weren't really anybody doing any malting of gluten-free grains at that time in Michigan, but there wasn't one in Colorado. And I looked at the different grains and they all fit the agricultural profile of what our farm would be. Uh, so I was pretty confident we could grow gluten-free grains out there. And so I bought a bunch of the gluten-free grains that were malted from Colorado, brought them, got, brought them shipped to Michigan and played around with gluten-free beer for a couple months. They and were it, not good. It didn't make anything. Yeah, what, what, what grains did you sort of work with? Say again? Uh, what grains did you do you sort of uh, work with? Uh, millet, sorghum, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking right now. Millet was the one that I was most excited about, though. Oh, buckwheat. Uh, uh, oh, cool. Dark, yeah. deep. Yeah. And yeah, it was like, it was kind of, it's kind of ironic because I was, you know, coming off of being a professional brewer, having a brewery <laughs> at Brewer, and then like spent two months making stuff that just tasted it wasn't like so bad I couldn't drink it, but I was like, this isn't what I want to spend the rest of my life doing, like making yeah, something. I yeah, yeah. yeah, it was so. that moment of like, well, not a lot of people are doing this. We know that it could be this kind of niche market, but we really want to be putting out stuff that we feel really meh about. Like, not really. Yeah. We want to feel really yeah. good about it. Yeah. So Session Mead was a style that uh, I ran into in the Pacific Northwest, like maybe two years prior to that. So maybe four or five years ago now. Uh, there was a meadery out there and I I thought it was really interesting what they were doing. I was like, wow, this is really cool. Uh, but ironically enough, I actually didn't care for their most some of their styles. I was like, I thought it was really creative and I was like, I've never seen anything like this. But um, so I kind of kept an eye out for some of that stuff uh, as I, I cruised around. I, I mean, I was already drinking mead before that, but um, through the idea of Lauren of like, what do you think about session mead? And so we started actively seeking, uh, like we're not big on shipping stuff too often. Um, but we started ordering some things and, and looking around and, and talking to different distributors to see what we could get brought into Michigan to try. Uh, and we quickly found some that we really liked. And we were like, okay, people are doing this and it's it's not, there's not a lot out there. Um, and then from there, we started playing with it to see, you know, was this something that we that we thought I could make? And so did kind of an iterative process in the basement, uh, went back to the homebrewing <laughs> level and buckets and everything. Yep, you know, yep. yeah. Start from scratch. Like that, that's actually the most fun part of that whole process, right? <laughs> So we didn't, for the, the first several months, we didn't try and make any finished product. I just tried to make, um, you know, see what base fermentation was going to look like and, you know, see how yeasts are going to react with nutrient levels and things like that. And play with, play with different yeasts and play with different honey combinations and, and processes for mixing the honey and water and whatnot. And pretty quickly we were able to, to make some base stuff that we we're like, okay, this, this has a good fermentation profile. It has good flavors and aromatics. It's not a finished product, but there's a long ways to go before we got to that. But we were like, I was, 
I was confident enough in my skill sets to say, okay, I'm gonna be able to take this and extrapolate it and put it in a tank and, and, and follow some of these process to, to get us to, to operate. Yeah, that's cool. What were some of the things that sort of stood, stood out during that process that uh, you were like, I didn't expect that, or it was just like a really cool sort of thing to find out in that, that initial startup in me? Yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't know much about nutrient before from the brewing side, uh, just because we, the, the beers we were, we were making were really strong with nutrient, like they just didn't really need much. Uh, yeah, but, that's it. But then from that, I, I, the bigger differences between like, you know, organic nitrogen and inorganic nitrogen in fermentation was, uh, uh, that was a steep learning curve for me. Like, I, I didn't realize how much DAP, I wasn't using DAP straight, but I was using a product that had a lot of DAP in it. And uh, I kept getting these other off flavors. And I was like, man, this doesn't taste like a fermentation. Like I'm not putting, I was couldn't figure out what the heck that flavor was and when the timing of it was coming in. And, uh, and once I got rid of using inorganic nitrogen, I went straight to organic nitrogen, not organic in the sense of like certified <laughs> organic, but organic in the sense of where it comes from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, but the, that made a huge difference. And I, that's really where things started to turn the corner on the testing. Um, I knew that yeah, like on, cool. on the yeast side of the spectrum, I wasn't sure if I was going to try and use beer yeast or wine yeast or, or what I was going to run. Um, I'd never really worked too much with wine yeast. I'd, I'd done a couple of smaller wine batches and things like that, not wine, but used wine strains for things before. Mm -hmm. I really had very little experience with wine strains, but I knew from my experience at the brewery that I wanted something that was going to be highly flocculent. Uh, to help with with settling and, and whatnot, because that was one of the bigger challenges we faced when we scaled up the brewery. Um, our house strain was not flocculent at all, and you know, trying to learn how, on the like, like I said, we kind of skipped over this. But when we opened the brewery, it was an understanding between my business partners and I that none of us knew what we were doing. Right. Yeah. You can only go up. Well, if we go down, it's not anyone in particular's I, fault. We all fail yeah. together. I was an active homebrewer before that. I recognized that there's a big difference between homebrewing and commercial brewing. And when they approached me and asked me if I was interested in being their brewer, I was like, guys, I don't know if the first thing about commercial brewing, I'm a homebrewer. They're like, well, we don't know how to run a brewery. Uh, that was, kind of, that was Let's in, do it. That was, and the brewery still exists today. Uh, but there was a few mistakes. Shouldn't there's more than a few mistakes we made. But uh, <laughs> one of the things we made early on was one of my favorite yeast strains wasn't very flocculent, but at a five-gallon batch, it settles out just fine. Uh, but when you scale that up to, you know, a 15, 20 barrel batch, uh, you know, full size fermenter, uh, regular full size fermenter for a small place, it doesn't want to settle. <laughs> so I knew I wanted uh, flocculent yeast. So I was able to, to pretty quickly kind of go through and just cross off a ton of yeasts for our house strains that we would want to run in here, um, just based on flocculation, which um, it made my testing process a lot faster. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's nice way to do it to 200 yeast strains pretty quick and and then from there get into flavor profiles and temperatures and all that stuff yeah cool no so in terms of your house style you said it was um it's more session meads they're on the drier side what's your kind of flagship product you have one that stands out or are you kind of rotating through the range all the time you know we started with kind of four core products that's what we had like at our grand opening and that's what we first started canning in four packs we do 12 ounce four packs um we had a standard, so it's just, you know, honey, yeast, water, nothing else added to it. And it's back sweetened just slightly with honey. Um, so that one probably has the most honey flavor and aroma of the things that we make, but it's still not super honey forward. Um, we make a sizer that's off dry. Um, we do a hopped with um, two varieties of hops that are grown here in Michigan. Um, no bitterness to it really, just aroma, flavor. Sure. Uh, Cascade and Crystal Hops. And then oh, nice. doing um, a gin botanical mead. So there's a local distillery. This is kind of our exception for a while to our um, 
Michigan sourcing. So there's a distillery here in Ann Arbor and uh, they produce a lot, they produce seasonal gin. So spring, summer, fall, winter. And each time they would take the leftover botanicals from the Carter head and bring them over in a bucket. And we would put a batch of meat on there and let it soak up the rest of the flavors from those botanicals. And we kind of made that exception because it was a waste product for them. They'd either throw it away or, you know, give it to a, a farmer to compost or, um, you know. That's a really cool idea. I like yeah, that. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it was super cool. Um, the problem was that they grew over time. And so they stopped following, you know, kind of like a seasonal distillation. Sometimes they would distill enough for a couple of years and then, you know, barrel age it for a while or things like that. So we couldn't really follow their seasons anymore. So we've kind of stopped producing that one, but those were kind of our four staples out the gates. The other three, Standard, Sizer and Hopped, we still produce. And those ones we just kind of always have year round. Um, they still sell well, but we are at, we've actually seen more traction with kind of um, seasonal releases. And I think we'll probably get to the point we've always done, you know, kind of seasonal releases in small batches here in the tap room, but we're starting to can more of those and mm -hmm. um, put them out at retailers. And we're starting to see more traction with that than with the, you know, kind of staple products. So um, lots of, we do a rhubarb mead, a blueberry maple mead, uh, you know, hopcot cider with hops and apricots, uh, the Christmas oh, nice. meat. Um, so yeah, those are kind of, I think our goal is to have those flagships on all the time, those three now, and then kind of get into like an annual, more of an annual rhythm where we know what those seasonal releases are going to yeah, be. Sure. It makes it a little bit easier to know what to anticipate, what farmers to work with that when. And then on top of that, we can always still do small batches of, you know, like a keg here of experimental stuff. Um, yeah. What kind of apples are you, are you using for your sizer? What, what are they, obviously local apples, but what are they like? You know, well, specific varietal or? No, it's it's definitely a blend. Um, the blend is actually rotating right now. So it's, we, here in Michigan, most of the apples are culinary apples. Yeah. Uh, but we, I apologize, I'm bad with names. So I've, I've got it all written down as far as what the different, the oh, couple yeah. different ones that I've got. We right probably now. wouldn't know them anyway. Yeah, just, <laughs> just, just not apples pretending we understand. It's <laughs> like, how, how tannic are they? How tart, that kind of thing. The yeah. two main ones in the blend that we used for our dry cider, where we just like fermented out nothing else, just really apple forward, our wine sap, Arkansas black. Um, remember the other ones in there? Yeah, I'm not even yeah, I caught myself too. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah never heard of either of no. them. I <laughs> know uh, we only asked because we, we, we just finished doing a size a cider with a local cidery, and we used yeah. this really Dabonet, which is like a Oh, yeah. Tannin. Yeah, yeah like very standard yeah. cider apple, yeah. yeah. But yeah, they did it in a year where the season was really, really warm and uh, the, the natural fermentation went up to about 9.5%. So I just got a lot more sugar in it that year and it was a couple of years yeah. old by the time we did the, the blending process. And it was probably one of the best yeah, sort it was of cool. uh, it was we've done, which is awesome. You guys are blending post-fermentation? Yeah, we decided yeah. to go that route just with the, uh, just because it was a collab. We've done a couple of sizes in house. We don't necessarily go that way, but we really found it was a when we do collabs as as meat brewers, we kind of really try to make sure that you know honey's in there and our our style and our house characters in there, and it's really hard to do that by blending fermentation, especially like beer fermentation. Or we did a sake in a similar sort of way. Actually, it turned out really, we really did good. A secondary but we did a secondary ferment in that instead of doing it primary together. But um, yeah, we really find that we lose that character. So that blending process it's is nice, just yeah. a really nice start for a collab for us. That's, That's cool. cool. Yeah, I like that. 
Yeah. So I guess we've spoken a bit about the apples. What about the honey? So talk, tell me a bit more about Michigan honey. Yeah, so the we have three main honey producers that we work with for most of our like year round and bigger batches. Like we'll we'll work with some smaller producers, like people that maybe only have 100 hives or 50 hives. Um, but Michigan does produce a lot of honey. And for reference, the three that we work with are kind of small to mid-size beekeepers for commercial commercial beekeepers, commercial beekeepers for Michigan. Um, and they have, you know, maybe 800 to 1500 hives. So that's kind of like medium size for Michigan. Fortunately, yeah. um, what we've learned is that the beekeepers here tend to use um, pretty pretty good and responsible practices when they're taking care of their bees. Um, so we kind of consulted with this woman who's a bit of a bee whisperer. Uh, she, she works at an agricultural university here um, and is an entomologist that specializes in Michigan bees and kind of asked her like, you know, we're not beekeepers. Are there things that we should be wary of? Are there things we should be on the lookout for when we're working with beekeepers? And she was like, you know what? like. All the beekeepers in the state work so damn hard. Um, they're all doing like the best they can by their bees, the best they can by the environment. Um, I haven't run into anybody that I would, you know, be concerned about working with. So from there, we were just kind of going on size, um, who had availability, who, you know, kind of had like a back supply maybe from previous years, could deliver, whatnot. Yeah, it's nice. And what kind of forage is that? You met, I mean, what, kind, what, what are the bees generally eating? Um, yeah, during the season, how does that change? Yeah, definitely. We so the three different suppliers that we run with are kind of spread out horizontally across the state, um, east to west. And on the the west side of the state, uh, her hives are closer to a big state forest. Uh, and that forest has a lot of uh, basswood trees. Sorry, what's ba what's basswood? Sorry, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna do this a lot. Yeah, it actually looks I'll more like a bush. Know. It looks more like a bush than it does a tree, but right. it's a uh, it both flowers and has a sap. Okay, interesting. Okay, cool. Uh, be, it, it makes for uh, a fun, uh, almost almost savory honey. It's not real dark though. Okay. Still, it uh, it comes through kind of in the lighter spectrum, but uh, it it has more of a savory type flavor coming through on that. And so a lot of her honey isn't as much of like your 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 traditional field elements of like goldenrod and clover and all that stuff that we see around here, uh, but more of the trees and the tree saps and things like that. So her her honey is a little more robust, I guess I would say. Um, the next honey producer that we use is kind of in the middle of the state and they they're just kind of a traditional ag area but there is a little bit more for like mixed forest in that area uh and i would say their honey is probably the most uh interesting flavor by itself just like as far as if you're just going to eat honey by itself yeah. out of the mm -hmm. uh, it's probably my favorite uh just for honey purposes but it uh there's a, is a very diverse honey like it when he's gotten his pollens tested you know there's 30 40 pollens in every batch yeah, like not like the bees are just focusing on one thing and, and then they're yes, yeah. Uh, but he actually is also keeping some hives on our farm, on my family farm. So hopefully in the oh, nice. hopefully this coming season, uh, he had a bad season last season. So we he took the honey from our farm and blended it into the rest of his, his batch. But hopefully this coming year we'll have our own honey off of my farm, which will be, be a lot of oh, fun. Cool. If you, if you get that, is it, do you have a special project for it? Um, are you going to be doing like a little single origin sort of uh, process yeah, we, with it? We've been talking about it. It'll definitely be single origin. We'll, we'll keep it all isolated. But as far as what we're doing with it, we haven't decided yet because we've got yeah. some apple out there. So I've like we've contemplated trying to do a, a, like a, a varietal cider, a sizer from yeah, our nice. We'd have the apples from the farm and the honey from the farm and then That's run that. So cool. Which uh, I will say is going to be a long shot. We we planted a cider apple <laughs> on that farm because 
because there are so many dessert apples in Michigan, it's really hard to get your hands on cider apples. So we thought, we'll plant some and see what happens. But we also knew, you know, we have like a one-year-old business at that point. We're not going to be able to sink a lot of time into going out there and taking care of it. So let's see what happens if we plant it and kind of let it maintain itself. Um, it does get maintained, just to be clear. <laughs> I should we get to prune every now and again. We have friends. <laughs> We planted 120 trees and the beer, the, the beer, the deer have done their damage. So there's maybe like six left. Um, we did cage all the trees and we got a buck that would get its horns in there, rip the cages off, and then like stomp the cages down in a fit of rage and then destroy the Yeah, he was like an empty <laughs> probably would have left it alone if you didn't put the cage around yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't enough to pull off the cages and eat the tree. He literally like stomped them into little balls. He was so <laughs> the little note. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. real like asshole bug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll be back. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Oh, that's great. How how long do apple trees take to to start to produce? It depends on what rootstock you're running on. Uh, but we were running on a, a pretty full size rootstock because we wanted to kind of work with the natural elements of the tree for their own immune system. Um, so a full size tree, you're looking at about four or five years before apple production. So not and that I, not that sort of far, yeah. Yeah, and the the smaller rootstocks, and when they they start trellising them and things like that, they can get production up in two or three years. Uh, and so, actually, some of the orchards right now are looking at they do they do uh, alternating planting where they'll go like full size rootstock and then they'll go um, dwarfing rootstock on on grafts, so that as the as the big trees come up, the basically the younger trees are going to die off or they'll take right. them out. But it get, get into apple production sooner, utilizing the field, and then once the the full size trees need that space, that's time to take out the, the dwarfing or the, the smaller trees on the roots. On the yeah, yeah you we, get two different flavor profiles from those two different trees, like the two different uh, methods as well. Because you do that with grapes. With grapes, if you do you know spur pruning versus uh, cane pruning, you get you know a little bit of diversity in your in your uh, grape profile. Yeah, no, I I haven't been fortunate enough to have like side by side taste taste tests, mm -hmm. uh, but I would like to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would like to hear about it. That's why it's yeah, one yeah. of those things. I always like that that primary production of, of you know, ingredients. It's, uh, yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah, and that's one of the cool things about honey, right? Is that it's that terroir and the reflection of the land and all yeah. that kind of, all that amazing embodiment of nature. It's, it's, it's really Especially familiar. if you get it from your own farm and you can start to control that and start to mix it with other things that are, you know, that you have access yeah. to as well. Especially just, you know, being a year in and going, Let's just be, let's just put sure. in 120 trees and, and see what see what happens, you know. Which is you got a good story out of it at least. It was it's so fun to have people in. You know, before COVID, we would do tours on you know weekend mornings and whatnot, and have people taste things and take them through the cellar. It was really cool to do honey tastings, and you know there are a lot of beekeepers yeah. here in Ann Arbor that would bring us samples just you know for fun. They enjoy mead. They drop off a little jar of their seasonal honey. It was so cool to have people taste through. You know, like. These two were extracted, you know, within a few weeks of each other, but one was on the east side of town, was on the west side of town. You know, they're maybe 10, 15 miles apart, totally different flavor profile, or, you know, same hive two years apart or two seasons apart, and they yeah. taste different, um, which is really neat. We don't really have, uh, like, single source honey so much in Michigan. There's just so much forage that there's, I mean, it, it would be really hard to, to have any kind of, like, single source honey. It's almost all wildflower, but... Yeah, just some seasonal variation. There's also, um, I don't know if you have anything similar, but there's kind of like a bee triangle that happens in the United States. Um, 
So one of our beekeepers keeps their bees in Michigan year round and just maintains the hives over the winter. One of them packs their hives on the back of like a flatbed truck and drives them down to Florida. Or Al Southern Alabama. Alabama, Florida, um, just so that they have food through the winter and they don't have to yeah. feed the hives. Um, and they just, you know, they have a better survival rate if they take them down to warmer weather. Oh, interesting. Um, and then what's really common among large commercial beekeepers, one of our beekeepers does it. Um, so we're kind of careful about which extractions we get from them. Um, they take their bees south for the, the, for the beginning of winter here, and then they take them west to California for the yeah. almond pollination yeah, yeah. and they bring them mm -hmm. back. Um, and they were really honest with about it, uh, you know, about it with us from the get go. Like it's really hard to make a living as a beekeeper. We can't really survive unless we do that and we get paid by the orchards in California. Um, but they kind of let us know, like, we know that the honey that from those, you know, from those orchards will come out in the extraction that we do in, spring, yeah. you know, spring, whatever. So we'll make sure that we're giving you fall extraction. Um, yeah, they, they're, they've said that there are years where they make more money from the pollinating in California than they do from honey production. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And yeah, yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, if you hopefully we're promoting the product in a right way that there's a there's a good uh, culture around Yeah, we're back now. So um, yeah, it, it's it's one of those things where it comes in and, and yeah, if people respect the product enough and, and you know, create uh, a good good marketplace for people to be in, you could... Uh, yeah, I think know, there's less of that kind of, of, yeah. there's less of that kind of monoculture in the UK. So we kind of we don't have enough space to have like all those crops that you pollinate at the same time. Huge div uh, diversity in... in uh, no, I mean, we, we well. still have a, uh, what they're calling the, uh, what is it, the produce gap, which we're just coming out of now. It's just the period at the end of March where then nothing grows in the UK still. Like there's no yeah, crops. Yeah, we're starting to get to the now where we have yeah. dandelion and yeah, rhubarb yeah. starting to come out. And that's, um, that's yeah, it. exactly. It's exciting. There's daffodils everywhere. It's, it's spring. It's good. But yeah, um, you can only sort of drive north. There's no driving south. No, north. there's no. Um, it's a bit of heather. They, they do take the bees up to yeah. graze on the heather field yeah. so and get some heather honey. But, uh, but beekeepers don't like heather honey. So. But beekeepers don't like heather honey. Yeah. So. Um, guys, I guess you've got it's like kind a of a tough time of year. In Sorry. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> it's all right. I was going to say it's kind of like a tough time of year. It starts to feel like spring. People are really excited, like they want to be outside. You, your like brain gets tricked into thinking that it's like the harvest yeah. season is starting. But in reality, we still have three months. Like we still have two more months of eating potatoes and rutabaga and like, <laughs> root vegetables before anything new and exciting comes up. So. No, that's it. So I, I'm just interested about uh, your your. So you say you have a core range, though. You also uh, you use a lot of local honey and wildflower honey. How do you find that sort of shift in flavor profile, and how do you sort of manage that as a as a commercial uh, brewer? So I'll because Michigan is so biodiverse, the the honey profile does change a bit. Uh, the, a couple of the, the larger producers um, that are on the, the bigger end of our spectrum, they their honey is already blended within their hives. So we get a relatively consistent product from, I mean, it's not the same thing every single don't get me wrong, but more consistency than you would expect from like one lot or something like that. You know, when they've got 25 or 30 yards out there with, with hives in them, then they can, then they're getting a, a bio balance coming into them. But from that, we then blend their honeys together uh, to try and create a more consistent product of our, our flagship stuff. 
And then if it's something where there's another primary flavor involved, like Christmas beans is a great example where I'll just pick which honey has the closest profile to what I used last year. Because um, cool. it's not really, people aren't going to taste it side by side. It's going to be, you know, yeah, close, it's yeah. been off the shelves for many years of the year. Uh, and then when it comes back on, uh, the cranberries and the ginger is the primary flavor coming forward. You get a little bit of the honey in the background. And so with that, I just choose whichever one's the closest uh, compared to the prior year. That's really good. It could be nice to get I that mean, over a long side. period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. The other side of that is kind of, I mean, like we put on our cans, this is an agricultural product. It's going to taste different every time. You know, we don't want it. We don't want somebody to pick up a can at the grocery store and get it again four months later and it tastes totally different. But we do want them to expect that this is going to be a little different. It's made from agricultural products. It's going to vary season to season. And so like if you're buying this, we hope you're in a mindset where you're going to get excited about that instead of, you know, be upset that there's some seasonal variation to this. You know, it's just it's part of buying something that's made with products from small farmers and producers here. And, you know, and that's just kind of the game. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, it. No, that sounds cool. So I guess you, you've got a place. Where, where is your facility? Have you got a tap room in town and a separate brewery or is it all in one place? So we do it all and uh, it's all on premise here. So we have a tap room downtown. We can walk around a little bit if you want, but um, tap room here. We do all of our production here. So we have five fermenter tanks in the back. Um, I don't think you'll be able to see them. Oh, there. love it. Oh, yeah. Love a fermenter. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, tanks back there, that's where we have a lot of our storage, freezers, you know, a big walk-in cooler for storing cans. Um, and then we have a tap room here that's kind of shaped like an L. Um, they're kind of made that way on purpose. So one area is just kind of all tap room seating. I'm just going to talk about this as though COVID is not here because hopefully we'll get back yeah. to that at some point. Um, you know, like all tap room seating all the time. And then that other element, there's a big, you know, like glass garage door in between. And that way we can open it up and it all feels like one space when it's busy and we need all that seating. But when it's not, we can close that down and we use it for all kinds of community events. So we do like bike repair workshops, yoga. Um, we offer it up for nonprofits if they need places for like meetings or fundraisers or things like that. Or CSA workshops. Yeah, CSAs, farmers, if they want to do like a seed swap kind of thing. We do tons of events in there. Um, so, you know, that brings people in and exposes them to a meadery. Maybe they haven't been here before. Yeah, and I guess that kind of leads me on to my next question. How, do, how are people finding the mead? And how do you kind of explain what mead is to people who haven't had it before? And what do people say about it? I'm always interested about people's reactions to, to what, yeah. you know, what we're doing. I mean, you probably know that we just have, so, we have the same conversation over and over and over. First of all, I think at the very beginning, um, did you run into this? We, we would tell people we were going to open a meadery and everybody thought we were opening a butcher shop. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I still make sales yeah. calls and they put me through to the kitchen and I speak yeah. to the chef and that's not. Yeah. So once best, we got best, past yeah. the fact that we weren't selling sausage. Um, then we kind of moved into like what mead was. So I, there's like a few groups of people, right? There's like your mead nerds who are so into it and they seek out every mead there is. And we actually kind of thought we'd have the toughest time with them because we don't make any traditional meads. Um, but they've all been like super cool and on board and down to try stuff. Then there's the folks where, 
I feel like this happens a lot. It's like, oh yeah, I've had mead. My uncle made a batch in his basement and it was terrible. Like I never want to yeah. try it again. Um, and so then it's like, well, maybe there's some things like your uncle could learn. There's <laughs> all um, like no offense to your uncle, but you know, mead, I think because you can put like honey and water in a bucket and put it in your dark basement, a lot of people try fermenting yeah, it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's an inexpensive place to, to start. So there's yeah. a lot of weird basement meat out there. Um, so then we kind of like talk them down off that ledge about what, <laughs> what, what maybe other meat could taste like. And then there's the whole batch of people out there who have never heard of it. Um, and you know, they usually come in and the conversation starts with like, what do you like to drink? And maybe it's like cheap domestic beer, or I only drink red wine. And then, you know, it's trying to figure out like, okay, well, what's the closest to your, your likes, your palate, how can we kind of bridge that gap for you? We find, I don't know about you, but we find that that cider is often that kind of like, I don't know, what's what's the right word? Gateway drug? Yeah, it's yeah. kind of like the yeah. gateway, gateway drug. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Had cider, but not had mead, you know? Um, so I don't, people are tend to be open. I think that was one of our, for us, one of the big reasons we wanted to hold out and find a space downtown. Cause a lot of it is just foot traffic that walks by yeah. and it's like, oh, cool space. What is this? And once they're in the door, you know, they're willing to try a, you know, $2, $3 small pour of something and see if they like it. Um, and, also, and then we get to have that conversation. Yeah, and Ann Arbor as a community is just a very curious community. Like it's yeah, people here are are open-minded to, to try new things and want to try new things. Like, you know, it, if their buddy tells them, oh, there's this place downtown, like, like regardless of what the next sentence is, they're probably going to go try it, like, because they want to make their own opinion about yeah, what, it. They, what's the damage? You know, what, what's it going to hurt? Yeah. yeah, and you know, I contrast that to to other parts of the U.S. where I've lived, where you know, people aren't maybe so open-minded. Like, I've I've talked to people in like where like where we grew up and whatnot, and like they're like, oh, Ann Arbor's a great place to open that, like implying that where they live is nice. <laughs> <laughs> is there is there a college in Ann Arbor? Am I yeah? Or is, yeah. What's the college yeah. though? It's a big public university here um, that tends to have like a pretty liberal bent to it. So sure. yeah, it's just, it's the right, just kind of the right place to try and open a meadery. Yeah, it makes sense. Pretty big tech community here. Yeah. Uh, like there's a, there's definitely businesses in Ann Arbor as well. It's not just the university. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. Cool. So I guess, um, sorry, we've been chatting for a little while now. What's next for you guys? What's yeah. uh, what's kind of what's on the agenda? Once assuming COVID's fine, and we just yeah. we just skip straight over that. What are you doing this year or next year or ten years? So it feels like a job interview now. Okay. <laughs> uh... Yeah, that's the right face. That's the right. Yeah, face. that's that's how I would react to that question as yeah, well. Exactly. We did. I mean, right. We'll pretend COVID didn't exist. We we have. Um, you know, we've stayed open the whole time in some capacity. So people could do, you know, curbside pickup, grab and go. Um, you know, Michigan really doubled down on pat doubled down on patios this year. So we have like heated greenhouses outside that people can drink in. And people it's were it's cold there in the winter, right? Really cold. Yeah, yeah. Cold cold. Because you're quite close to Detroit, yeah, right? Yeah. Which is like Yeah. Yeah, it's cold. We had I mean some of these people I took a picture because I just Loved them so much. I mean, we were having a full-on blizzard whiteout, and we had people come. I mean, I think probably just for the story of being able to say they did it, but they came in like <laughs> snow suits, goggles, and just sat at a picnic table and drank beer while they got covered in snow, or drank mead while they got covered in snow. And I was like, bless you, you people. I love you. Yeah. 
It's like sitting in a, in a beer garden in London where it's pouring down rain and going like, no, no I'm no, not it's moving. It's fine. I'm it's not moving. Rain. I moved here. It's London. <laughs> it rains all the time. It's not going to beat me. This is life here. Uh, so yeah, we kind of kept the patio going. I think this spring we'll probably expand it out again and just try to, I know you're also working on like an outdoor mead garden. So we'll probably try and uh, yeah. amp that up. Um, you know, last season was kind of like a thrown together quick, let's get some tables and some yeah, we've got some time. Yeah, yeah. So like maybe we can make it all oh, do we? a lot more enjoyable. Uh yeah. <laughs> there's just like buses whizzing by. Um so that's I mean, I think that's on the near horizon. It's you know, it's a little tough. I feel like we had a lot of momentum coming into this last year and it felt like yeah. we're in place where the business is feeling stable um there's like potential for it to be profitable soon uh which like gives us more opportunity to grow we did sign with it it's also nice just to take a breath i mean i'm looking forward to the day when if you were profitable for like a couple of months you'd be like oh, okay yeah. right, i'm not on a burning platform <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, yeah. exactly Sorry, and no, then, being honest right yeah yeah you, know, you should just at least be like you know what this is what it should feel like and this is okay yeah. for the moment and it felt like that was really close. Obviously, that's like a lot. It's kind of like a mirage in the distance now. Um, so I think right now my mindset is just kind of like that anticipation, a little bit of anxiety of like, okay, when we can open again, are we going to be able to pick up where we left off or are we going to have to like build again? We'll see. Um, yeah. I don't know. Where do you see us five years from now? Yeah, the five, my five, 10 year is... It's got a couple things. One is some help in the back. Like I do all the production right now by myself. And like, it's not a big deal with five tanks, like five tanks I can manage and still have time to on occasion get into more experimental and, and play with things and research. But uh, I mean, day-to-day -day cleaning tanks isn't really what I want to spend my time doing. Like I'd like no. to have some help with that. And then that focuses my time on a little more of a little more supply chain, you know, figuring out like who's out there and what they've got. And beyond that, like continuing to expand. One of my long-term goals is I'd like to, to bring my family farm into this more, um, mm -hmm. you know, maybe whether that's just even a, a storage facility out there for materials or whatever it is, but um, trying to figure out how that all plays together as, you know, my parents are getting older. So I wanna, I wanna see that, that legacy continue and, and but, my, but my business is here. So how do I merge those two things and, and make no. that all cool so. no, That's really cool, that's really exciting. Maybe have a few of those trees survive. That would yeah, be a yeah. plan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. just plant more, you know, just there's yeah. only so many trees a deer can destroy in a day. So once you find that ratio, you well, you'll until they start breeding and just I thought, yeah. Oh I yeah, God, I didn't think about that. Cool. Generation, you've got a generation to figure it out. Yeah. If we can just outplant them, they're like, all right, that guy looks like he's <laughs> yeah. let's plant twenty-four. <laughs> See, that's where your spare time needs to be set, is just just planting enough <laughs> apple trees that you dominate the deer society. Yeah. You're doing deer math. We'll do deer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's um there's a handful of session meteries in the States, uh, and there are a couple here in Michigan that do kind of a blend of traditional meads and session meads. It's still small enough to the point that I think it feels like a really supportive industry. Yeah. Like, oh my God, there's another meadery opening in Michigan. Awesome. Like that's such great news. More people will know what mead is. Um, and so there's kind of like a, there is a mead makers association in the US that puts on, you know, like a conference every year. Yeah, and I was meant to, I was meant to be there whenever it was. Oh, oh, nine, nine, no, 2020. 
Yeah, I was meant to be speaking about pasteurization. That was going to be my exciting talk. But uh, it got cancelled, obviously. Oh, no, it was March 2020. Yeah, March, yeah March it was a year ago. Yeah. yeah, it was a year ago. It was like right on the fence. Yeah, because yeah, I was like, going to go. I was like, I'm yeah. going, I'm going. <laughs> I was like, I'm not. No, no, it just got real. Also, I don't know if you saw that, but you said pasteurization. Man, just like, whoa. <laughs> oh, yeah. We love a bit of pasteurization here. That is... That is what we yeah, do. Yeah, we, we, we don't use, uh, so we didn't sort of like you guys back sweets, so I assume you use uh, probably sorbates. Do you use sorbates and uh, sulfites or are you just sulfites? Bit of both. Yeah, so we, we don't use any sorbates or sulfites. And like yeah. the pasteurization. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah, that it's, it's, also be in the five year like goal plan. Um, yeah, there's, we can have a chat about it offline. It's not <laughs> it's not as difficult. Once you get once you get yeah. the process down and the, the kind of critical control process down, it's actually really safe yeah. and really, really good. I mean, I really like it. I'm yeah, so do I. There, there is some instances where I'm like, you know, sulfides do come in yeah. handy, but Perfect. realistically, pasteurization for us really fills in a, a lot of those holes that uh, that you plug up with sulfides and, and yeah. sulfates. Yeah. 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 yeah, for sure. Yeah, we've been... That's we like, CO2 as well. Yeah, I recognize, like, I feel like we've been lucky that our products have stayed as stable as they have. Like, we... We recognize that there are holes, just like you said, you know, and that's something that, you know, we try to limit our production and we were very conscious of like how distribution works and everything right now in a sense that making sure that we don't have something sitting on the shelf for too long or not just in case, because, yeah. 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 We all have the same nightmares, don't yeah. we? Yeah, <laughs> this is, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, guys, thanks a lot. I mean, unless there's anything you want to ask us, we, we're kind of, we'll, we'll pull it to a close but thanks very much for your time it's been really nice chatting to you well wait let's put it back where where do you want to be in five years what's it going to look like for you i would like some bees yeah i would actually i would like yeah. some so our own bee farm somewhere outside yeah. of the city that's because we work with lots of different bee keepers at the moment and in the uk they're all they have three hives or they have five hives and it's it's lovely but we can only do a limited amount of, of kind of production with them and we sell yeah. it as sort of very special and it, it, It's sort of hard as well because most of those smaller guys also, you know, they generate a little bit more money by going to the farmer's markets and doing sure. it smaller portions. And you have that conversation with like, yeah, I understand, but you need sort of, you know, 100, 200 kilos here and there. It's a different sort of premise. And yeah, being able to go out and do that. And for me as a mead maker as well, is like being closer to my primary product would just be, so influential to how I construct my meat and how I construct my recipes. Yeah. And yeah, that connection is something. And that I think like from, from my more commercial side of things, it would that enable us to like educate consumers a bit more about that kind of that link with the land. And so I think we, I mean, we're in bang in central, well, pretty much central London. So it's very easy to forget where food comes from. And the idea that you just go to the shop and you pick it out of a plastic packet and you're like, Oh no, that's a piece of meat, or you know, that's a piece of fruit that someone's harvest. Yeah, we kind of want to bring that, bring that linkage back. Yeah, somebody, sure. somebody's life has been given to, to yeah, yeah, to and that that's, 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 that's a that. real it's thing that's grown in the wild. Right, yeah. you know, yeah. that's that's it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I guess that's that's kind of the five-year goal. And also, I, I'd like a bigger facility. Uh, I'd like a bigger <laughs> facility. Yeah, I'd like I'd like an office. <laughs> Um, what are you on about? This is perfect. This is a sheet in the warehouse. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you got to uh, record. Yeah. You know, I think you're doing great. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think more of the same. I think we're in a we're in a bit of a we were as as, as you guys. You right. guys, yeah. We the end of real, 2019. Yeah, we were in a real groove. We were like, oh, we are smashing yeah. this. We yeah. are 
really excited for 2020. And then 2020 yep. came and it was a bit of a But I think, phase. you know, in hindsight, you look at it and you go, well, I'm glad that we were in that position, you know. By the time we got to 2019, I'm glad that we were, yeah, you know, we were going leaps and bounds because yeah. that sort of next step and how to deal with that sort of process change, you know, if we weren't in a, in a good position would have been a lot more difficult. Yeah, and it was and difficult it, and it enough as it was. It has afforded some time for reflection on, mm. uh, yeah, these things about, like, what, what are we doing as a brand and, like, who, what do we... What do we want to do with our yeah. business and where are we going? <laughs> a bit of retrospect. But yeah, a bit, of, a bit of a calming of the pace, should we say, yeah. yeah. I mean, even just like that mindset, you know, I think going through this has certainly been tough. And if you're coming in feeling optimistic and then hit this just like real roadblock, I think it probably helped us all make that decision of like, it's worth it to tough this out, even if it's going to yeah. take a year, two years, and then try and bounce mm -hmm. back afterwards versus, you know, if you're in a rough spot coming in, you think like, let's just yes. cut our you know like exactly. let's yeah. get out of this um but yeah i do think it was good it made that decision really easy of like yeah we're gonna hunker down we're gonna get through yeah, yeah so yeah awesome well guys thanks very much for your time um yeah, really nice speaking to you yeah we should yeah have a chat again at some stage and uh good luck guys love Cheers. that thanks for listening guys hopefully you enjoyed that so hit the subscribe and like button and follow us on all our social media and we'll see you again next week if you've got any questions or thoughts or just want to chat about mead and honey, then drop us an email to podcast at gosnels.co.uk. Or better still, jump on our Instagram live at five. Ask us uh, any questions that you have and watch us scramble to try to find the answer and uh, look like we know what we're talking about. Or if you want to see what I look like, you can head on over to the website at www.gosnels.co.uk.